Welcome or welcome back to season one of the Primrose Chronicles. My name is Marty Young. I'm your narrator, host, and raconteur for today's episode number three. Let's go find Randy. Last episode laid the necessary groundwork for today's tale, so I hope you caught all of it and are ready to settle in. I'm really glad you're here. Broderville High School in Indianapolis, circa 1961 through 1965, was like most high schools then and now, so an extensive exposition of the social class structure is not necessary. There were the jocks with their letterman's jackets, the nerds with their pocket protectors, and the overlappers with their seeming ability to handle every situation who could glide effortlessly between the two groups and were usually the class officers, prom royalty, and teacher assistants. Then there was, in our minds anyway, the class of dudes and dudettes who seemed to care less about fitting in and by that very trait established their own counterculture. That culture seemed to be one of rebellion, indifference, and threat, both perceived and expressed, affecting even the most together of the socially elite. Finally, there was the faceless mass that comprised the rest of us, all just trying to figure out how we fit in and desperately hoping that the right connections would move us up into that rarefied air of recognized high school personalities. Fifty years later, I admit we were most unknown to most others in a high school of 2,000 insecure teens. But we had a group of friends that made us feel socially superior to the other casts, so categorized by our own rating system, who themselves felt superior to still others. For the most part, everyone stayed in their own lanes. But there were times that worlds unexpectedly entered another's orbit. You know, kind of like Danny and Sandy in Greece. At other times, as you'll soon hear, those orbits collided with sometimes near-disastrous results. In one such case, it was a hot summer night. And for us, a serious car cruise was in order. I cannot remember why there were only three of us, but on that evening, everybody seemed to be predisposed except Strainy. And he showed up with another friend from high school, Steve Barnes. Steve was driving his mom's 1958 Mercury station wagon. A family car like that was not our first choice for cruising, even if we only buzzed each car lot. Still, two things were certain. We were not going to be seen at the TP drive-in in it, doubting that any carloads of females would give us a second look for a car chase. And as cool as it would be to go to Merrill's Heidecker, we were broke. Add to that, my Plymouth was running on fumes, strainy Chevy had a flat, so we lowered ourselves to take Barnes's Mercury. You know, any port in a storm. Since Barnes still didn't have his own wheels and seldom got the family car, he was fine with driving that night. And he loved showing how that 383 cubic inch 330 horsepower Mercury engine had some serious guts. So since he was driving, with the lone instruction of no TP and no Heidecker, he could call the rest of the route. Leaving from my house, he decided to start at the location further south, the A&W root beer stand, and arriving there around the lot we buzzed. One orbit and then back out on the Keystone, that's all we'd take. Because as I mentioned last episode, we usually made the A&W route of the cruise quickly and without a lot of fanfare because we didn't belong, but if we didn't hang long, we weren't hassled. The night in question was one when we drew attention to ourselves and almost didn't live to tell about it. Things went fine until after we cruised through A&W and pulled back on a Keystone heading north, anticipating the more accepting driving confines of Frisch's Big Boy, then Nobby's, then Dog and Suds, and finally Steak and Shake, before heading back for an exaggerated conversation boasting 
probably at my house where it all started. That was the plan, but as Scottish poet Bobby Burns observed, the best laid plans of mice and men oft gang aglay. No, I'm not lapsing into my native tongue. I just do remember some random things from English literature. The way things actually went was actually Barnes' fault. I guess, looking back, I can't blame him. He didn't usually drive. He didn't realize the defined pecking order of cruising that put high school geeks with family cars low on the cruising chain. But couldn't even Barnes see that his mom's station wagon was obviously beneath the candy apple red 1957 Chevy Impala tuck and rolled interior lake pipes and a 327 V8 engine belonging to A&W's king of sweet rides, Randy Jackson? You'd think so, but Barnes was an idiot, and that would become abundantly clear on this evening. One last bit of landmark information is necessary to set the stage for what was about to transpire. The second traffic light north of the A&W driveway from Fall Creek Parkway to the intersection at 45th Street was about a quarter mile. The next traffic light was at 46th Street, allowing for a legitimate drag race between Fall Creek and 45th before slowing at 46th a block later. And that was enough for the A&W crowd to label it as the unofficial National Hot Rod Association drag strip. Non-sanctioned, but close enough. In the early morning hours, races became serious. Cross town, inter as well as intra street club drag racing took place, and occasionally car pink slips were put up as spoils of the competition. It was a little early for that kind of action, but we were about to roll onto that track. So do you get the picture? Okay, let's continue on. We moved into the right lane as Barnes headed through the traffic light at Millersville Road and toward Fall Creek Parkway. As we rolled up upon the red light there, Steve put his Mercury's automatic transmission into neutral and revved the engine, showing us the power of every horse under the hood, even if it was a station wagon. And he did it more than once to make sure we didn't miss it. What Steve had missed was that Randy Jackson, with his brother Stu riding the right side passenger front seat or shotgun, had rolled out beside us, more or less oblivious to us as well. Likely, they were planning on the same cruise route, but were certainly likely to draw more attention than we ever could in this family conveyance. At the exact time of Barnes's extended demonstration of the Mercury's raw power, Randy pulled up on our left and was surprised to think that anyone, let alone occupants of a mom squad car, would challenge his ride. Anyone in their right mind normally wouldn't challenge or even cross Randy. You see, the Jackson brothers were the Northside's classic hoodlum characters. It was said if you looked up the word hoodlum in the dictionary, it actually said, see, Randy and Stu Jackson and their mugshots were there. They had both seen the interior walls of Juvenile Hall and often, almost to the point of it being their second home. Some in the know swore Randy, the elder sibling, had his own reserve cell. He had dropped out of school at 16 but still hung around the campus, waiting daily for the close of school to make sure all knew Broad Ripple High School was still his turf and he likewise ruled Keystone as his personal drag strip domain. Further, most in the know figured that when Randy went up the river for a long stint, Brother Stu would assume his position and the Jackson rule would remain intact. Tonight, they traveled together. Barnes's ill-advised escalation of his Mercury engine's RPMs took place around 7 p.m., not the usual time to drop a race flag. But either Randy couldn't tell time, or he just couldn't accept the idea of a high school lowlife invading the crews of his kingdom, no matter the time of day. For whatever reason, 
When Barnes tacked his engine up, Randy, at his younger brother's urging, did the same. If I hadn't been so scared, I probably would have heard any number of Beach Boys or Janadine card songs running through my head. Instead, the simple notes of a funeral dirge began to occupy my thoughts. There was still time for us to do a mea culpa and slink away. Good evening, Mr. Jackson. Didn't mean to do that, Randy, sir. Have a nice evening. But have I mentioned Barnes was an idiot? You see, when Randy responded by flexing his sweet ride's own RPM muscle, Barnes pushed his accelerator even farther to the floor. As poor timing would have it, the traffic light had turned from red to green, and Barnes did the only thing you should do at that point. He dropped his gear shift on the column into overdrive. That directed the RPMs of the revving engine automatically to the drive chain and rear axle in order to leave the intersection very quickly and very loudly. It was that perfect storm for a vehicle that had never been driven so hard or so aggressively, but if it had a soul, it had longed to do so for so long. Thus, the Mercury leaped forward, squealing its tires but flying off the line. In any other setting, it would have been Barnes's finest automotive moment. But this moment included the Jackson brothers. Randy still could not believe that any fool would dare call him out, much less in a family car. And this sense of disbelief meant that when the light turned, he didn't even begin to rise up immediately. So as Barnes left the line, tires screeching, anyone observing the proceedings would have to say, Barnes left Randy in the dust. It took Randy only a brief moment to realize the potential embarrassment of astronomic proportion that was about to occur if his Chevy was beaten by a Mercury station wagon. After that brief moment, he too was off. He powered shifted through the gears, but a quarter mile passes quickly, and we sailed through the 45th Street finish line slightly ahead before breaking to a stop at the 46th Street traffic light. In the early morning contests, even stopping at 46th Street wasn't necessary, since accomplices idled their cars in the east and west lanes, allowing contestants to fly past without slowing red or otherwise. But stop we did, and the Jackson Chevy pulled up on our left. Ever the pacifist, I urged we all stare straight ahead to appear unaware that we had drawn the attention of the occupants of another set of wheels. It didn't work. Hey, punk. Stu Jackson said very evenly and clearly. He said it several times, each time a little louder. Don't look, I whispered from the back seat. Eyes forward. I didn't have to tell Strainy more than once. We were both six foot five on the outside, but on the inside we were munchkins. We preferred to explain it by saying we were lovers, not fighters. But we were actually similarly underskilled in both areas. Without further personal embarrassment, let's just say... We both knew we didn't like what potentially lay ahead and wanted to avoid it at all cost. Meanwhile, this was the course of the conversation for the full time we sat out the light, an ever-increasing crescendo of, hey, punk, hey, punk, hey, punk. It seemed to be working. We were seemingly oblivious to Stu's calls, and the Jacksons were becoming distracted by other cars that were cruising, some driven by girls who wanted the Jacksons to chase them. Maybe their short attention spans would work for our advantage. Maybe we'd get away because of their distraction to a more basic and primal calling, the pursuit of the fairer sex. Then, as further evidence that Barnes was an idiot, he inexplicably looked over, returning Stu Jackson's gaze, and that returned their attention to the lowlifes that had tried to embarrass them on their strip. 
Shaken back to the task at hand, the younger Jackson uttered those words that have since become epic and etched in Primrose Chronicles lore. Both the zenith and the nadir of all the expressions coming from the stories of my childhood legends, he said, follow us and we'll rumble. Yeah, that's exactly what was said. And it was an invitation the Jackson brothers would not let us decline. There was no way we could say, oh, thanks, Mr. Jackson, but we have plans. Thanks just the same. No, the light changed, and Barnes obediently dropped in behind the 57 Chevy, only recently desecrated by its loss to a station wagon. That perceived desecration was about to be avenged by the Jackson brothers, by their retribution upon the Mercury occupants, or so we feared. We started to slow down, hoping they'd soon tire of the whole episode, realize the losers behind them weren't worth their effort, and head on to other drive-in haunts with others that they could rightfully intimidate as well. Instead, when we slowed, they slowed. We were pretty much on a south-to-north trek. Keystone was a major thoroughfare with a raised center median, narrow, but effective in keeping folks from turning wherever in the block they wanted, much to the disappointment of businesses that could only be reached by customers coming from a particular direction. In other words, any escape routes were few and far between. There was virtually nothing to the right, just shopping centers and used car lots and Willowbrook Golf Course and Lake Maxinall. On the left was the median, and when there was a break in the intersection, there was oncoming traffic. No immediate opportunities to flee. We followed our captors all the way up toward Kessler Boulevard, driving past each of the hot spots that we had expected to cruise that evening. Instead, if we were noticed by anyone, we were casually observed as being in tow by the Jacksons, and perhaps those observances were accompanied by a grateful exhale of relief and a better-them-than-me expression. Just before Kessler, the Impala made a U-turn, and we were expected to follow. Now we were headed south and beginning to wonder if we would ever see our families again. I suddenly realized Brandy had perhaps made a mistake. And if we were lucky and a little daring, we might escape the rumble. As we headed south, we were now on the side of Keystone that had several street intersections leading into subdivisions that could potentially and eventually connect us with Primrose and home. While Barnes still drove, I became backseat navigator, and Strainy became the lookout and spotter since Steve was not a regular as either a chaser or a chasey in any previous TP Fox and Hounds activities. We were about to begin a perilous flight to possible freedom, and we had a rookie at the wheel. It was a risk we would have to take. We crossed through the light at Keystone and 52nd. The next side street came as the two-car caravan approached 51st. As soon as the nose of the Jackson Chevy got beyond the opening onto 51st, at my instruction, Steve again floored it while turning right, hard right, onto 51st, and we began to make our escape. Randy slammed on his brakes, backed up, and proceeded to pursue us across 51st, but we were in my neighborhood now. The slow expansion of boundaries given in trust to me by mom, first on foot, then bicycle and now car, had made these streets as familiar to me as the proverbial back of my hand. We flew past Hillside, deciding to not be slowed by another turn too soon. Elementary school number 91 and its playground full of so much better memories whizzed by on the right. Barnes, 
You know the crazy one that got us into this to begin with proved to be just as crazy when it came to escape driving maneuvers. I set us on a course that, for the most part, had us approaching four-way stops, and Steve figured everyone else would be stopping so it didn't need to be us. But the family car was not made for cornering, and we couldn't quite lose the Chevy, initially. A series of zigzag turns became our escape route, left on Critton and right on 49th, left on Norwaldo and then right on 47th. It was at that turn that the fickle finger of fate became a friend. Every summer, the side streets between 42nd and 56th Street, north and south, and between Primrose and Erie, east to west, were chip-sealed. A process done instead of asphalt paving, putting down a combination of oil and gravel, curb to curb. Early on, the mix made the streets tacky and noisy. More to the point, many a child's summer wardrobe was ruined by a bicycle crash into the tar while many a new car finish was pocked by the rocks and the oil. It was early August as we made our dash for life, and by that time the streets were in various stages of dustiness. None was worse than 47th, or in our case, none was better. Immediately the spinning and fishtailing of a nearly out-of-control station wagon put up a smoke screen of dust that forced Randy to slow significantly. The loose rock base was probably not doing his paint job any favors either. As a result, two blocks on 47th and then left on Ralston had us leaving the pursuing duo farther and farther back in our rearview mirrors. If only 46th would be clear of cross traffic. And it was. And as Strainy looked first left then right and shouted clear, he looked back and said, we've lost them. Fearing they had merely fallen back or taken a parallel route, we sped down Ralston, past Strainy's, which was our first choice of sanctuary, but his driveway was full of his older twin sister's friend's cars, so no escape there. So it was down to 44th Street, another right turn and on around the bend, back onto Primrose, finally pulling into our driveway, sufficiently up near the house that the car wasn't immediately noticeable from the street. Barnes rammed the gear shift into park, and we all tumbled out and up to the patio where, as dusk was approaching, Mom and Dad sat with glasses of iced tea and their second or third Winston since supper. We were about to invade their serene space, possibly exposing them to the danger that we had for the moment eluded. But we were grateful we'd made it this far. It didn't take too much to coax the story out of us. We weren't certain how long before we would be exterminated and wanted to make sure someone knew who to come after with arrest warrants for murder or at least assault and battery with intent resulting in hospitalization. As we told the story of our brush with death, the responses of my folks were markedly different from each other. Mom appeared visibly fearful for our safety. At different points in the narrative, she would just shake her head and express either a Martin or a shocked Martin Scott. Strainy was one of Mom's favorites, so an occasional Daniel also was voiced. Barnes was a newcomer, and if she'd chosen to verbalize, she would have laid the blame for that entire evening's events at his feet. Meanwhile, Dad sat quietly, listening to the tale unwinding by three breathless, scared, spitless teens, one of them his eldest, and heir to the young family fortune. He never asked a question or offered a comment, merely taking an occasional sip of tea or a drag on his cigarette. When it became apparent that the story was starting over with each of us filling in more and more of the basic elements, Dad arose and without a word, climbed the stoop and went inside. Are you okay, hon? Mom asked. Yeah, I'm coming back. 
Dad responded, tight-lipped as always. Mom turned her attention to the youthful trio, who were beginning to realize they had perhaps dodged a situation of great peril. The story began to turn to tales of my artful navigation, and Barnes's skillful driving, and Strainy's eagle eyes looking out for danger. In truth, we each felt we had cheated death. About them, Dad came out the front door. It had become just dark enough that I couldn't see that he was carrying something, but he certainly was. He eased his six-foot-three frame into his lawn chair, and now closer, we saw he carried a tool of his citizen's gas and coke utility appliance installation trade, a 14-inch pipe wrench. After sitting comfortably, having laid the wrench across his lap to take another swig of iced tea, he set down his tea, and he picked up the tool. Thinking back, I recall a 10-inch pipe wrench would have looked like a toy in his big right hand and a two-foot wrench would have been unwieldy, but he handled the 14-incher perfectly, tapping it firmly and intentionally in the palm of his left hand. Then came the statement that for hundreds of chapel kids and a trio of his grandchildren became the battle cry for all really cool dads everywhere, evenly and deliberately, in time with the tap, tap, tap of the pipe wrench, my dad spoke. Let's go find Randy. I couldn't believe it. My dad wanted to take the Jackson brothers up on their invitation. He wanted to be the aggressor. He wanted to find them in Rumble. So that's what we did. At dad's urging, we got back in the car, that family car, that vehicle created for vacations and carpools, and we went looking for the poster children for juvenile delinquency. Straining and Barnes were in the front seat, me and my dad in the back. So we backtracked. We revisited the drive-ins. We cruised, but with a purpose. In truth, the rest of the evening was really an answer to my silent prayer. I didn't want to find Randy, and we didn't. At one point, Steve drove up next to one of his buddy's cars from school just to talk, and I remember Dad slouched down in the back seat not wanting to be seen, but ready to spring if a rumble initiated. But we never found Randy. Finally, we headed back to 4425. By then, Mom had gone in. It was time for Strainy to go home and Barnes to get the car back. So we said goodnight in the driveway, and Dad and I headed toward the front door, side by side. Dad with the wrench hanging from his right hand. Mom, sighing a deep sigh of relief and shaking her head as we entered the living room, simply said, Donald Eugene, what were you thinking? Dad didn't answer. He just grinned and took the wrench back to the basement and put it in his toolbox. And I looked back at Mom. She'd already returned to her crossword puzzle, but with a proud, knowing smile on her face. Her son had seen firsthand the knight in shining armor to whom she'd pledged her own protection years before. And that was a good thing. I have to admit that I had had my doubts about Dad before that. I had the typical teen idea that he wasn't that cool had some old-fashioned ideas, and really was kind of boring. A great part of that thinking evaporated that evening. In the days that followed, Dad, my dad, had moved into the rarefied air of rock stars with my buddies. His words of mission were on the lips of them all. Let's go find Randy, one of them would say, and the rest would just hoot their approval. And it couldn't be said by any of them without mimicking the deliberate gesture involving an imaginary pipe wrench and the palm of his hand. 
the terrifying, dreadful invitation of a couple of bullies, follow us and we'll rumble, proved to be the necessary catalyst for an even greater statement of deliberate purpose and resolve. Let's go find Randy. Well, that's it for this time. Hope you enjoyed today's yarn. Let me know on the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page what you thought. You'll also find pictures and extra materials related to the episode story there. Email me at theprimrosechronicles at gmail.com with personal questions or comments. I promise to write back. And by all means, share this link with anyone you think would appreciate an enjoyable diversion. We're going back to our originally announced bi-weekly routine with episode 4. It'll drop on Thursday, April the 14th, but there are plans for back-to-back installments April the 14th and the 21st, so be watching on the other media platforms of The Primrose Chronicles for upcoming topics and future schedules. Until then, take some time to enjoy your own cruise down your own personal lane of special recollections when you get a chance. I'll be collecting my own for sharing in future remembrances of the neighborhood where life's a holiday, life's a family, life's a fond memory on Primrose Lane, uh, Primrose Avenue. Blessings for now. <laughs>